This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm going to give away the ending to our first story. It's about a medical breakthrough and about hope, but it did not start that way for Carl Leeson, a former music teacher who lives in Canyon City. Two years ago, he was in good health and savoring retirement. Never, ever had a day where I wasn't planning for the next thing to do, and it was a full-time job just to be retired. But when he went in for a routine physical, his blood tests were a little off. The doctor waited a few months, drew more blood, and started to worry. A few more trips to the lab, and Leeson got a phone call. He had leukemia. I was never so scared and never so panicked in my entire life. I did not know what to do. I gave the phone to my wife. I walked outdoors. I didn't know whether to cry, whether to run. It was over with. As far as I was concerned right then, I was through. Leeson's doctor had given him six months to a year to live. Your life is over with, and you know what? I loved my life. And I always used to say when I was a little kid, I wanted to live to be 106. And he used to laugh at me about that. My mother did live to be 101. My dad lived to be 95, so everybody kept saying, oh, you've got a long life. And here I was looking at over in six months. The usual course of treatment was chemotherapy, but Leeson's doctor offered another path, a clinical trial of a new drug at the University of Colorado's Anschutz Medical Campus. Leeson drove to Aurora and met the physician leading the study. And he gave me the one thing that I hadn't had for weeks, and that was hope. He started the drug trial two years ago today, and there's apparently not a trace of cancer in his body And this is not a fluke. 85% of the patients in the trial are in full remission. The FDA has now approved the drug for use in some patients. And this trial is being led by Dr. Dan Pollier. And uh, Dan, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. So Carl Leeson was diagnosed with something called AML, acute myeloid leukemia. We mentioned his prognosis no longer than a year. Tell us briefly about this disease and why it's so deadly. Yeah, acute myeloid leukemia is it's the most common type of acute leukemia to occur in the adult population. And it is uh, uh, historically been associated with a horrible prognosis because it is among the most aggressive cancers known to man. Most aggressive cancers known to man. Yes. What makes it so? Well, there's a a variety of biological features that contribute to this, and and a lot of it we don't still understand. But patients uh, historically who receive this diagnosis uh, almost universally die from this disease. And and as Carl was told at the beginning, their life expectancy is very brief after diagnosis. We'll unpack some of the science here. But first off, it must feel pretty good to hear somebody like Carl Leeson, who after two years in your program, is apparently free of disease. I mean, treating patients like Carl is is the honor of a lifetime. I mean, you know, my training in, in, in learning to become a leukemia doctor is nothing. It did not train me at all for the experience of taking care of patients in the modern era because, you know, the expectations were so poor, the outcomes were so bad. Now, you know, I, I've never really had the chance to, to get to know long-term patients with, with AML and, uh, and, you know, to be able to get to know and, and, and become friends with someone like Carl, uh, I mean, it's just a, it's a, a, an incredible experience. That's fascinating. Why did you get into this aspect of medicine if you knew that so much of it would be so quickly terminal? 
You know, there are inherent challenges in, in this disease that are appealing to, to people like me and, and other leukemia doctors. Um, there are um, uh, certain people, I think, that are attracted to some of the hardest problems to solve. And, um, and, and look, here we are, um, you know, many years later, and uh, we, we have been able to make a big impact in a disease. And so, you know, this is exactly what I had always hoped for. Um, no guarantees that we would have gotten here, but uh, but but this, this is, is why this is exactly why it was it was th- this promise and the the fight exactly. Okay, this trial is going on at CU and nationwide in Colorado. It includes thirty three people. I understand ninety one percent of them have had some response, and eighty five percent, like Leeson, are in. Can we say full remission? Complete remission Complete is what remission. we say, yes. So how confident are you that this is a breakthrough sort of across the board? This is the biggest breakthrough in in the in the you know history of this disease in in the in the last many decades certainly in in my career. And remember, uh, this is a common disease in adults. It's it's a it's a it's a um, a relatively rare type of a cancer, you know, compared to breast cancer, colon cancer, prostate cancer. Yeah. But it is overrepresented in the number of patients who die from the disease. So you know, patients historically, even though it's not uh, very common, only about thirty thousand people a year in the United States states get a diagnosis of AML. But historically, almost as many of them have died as many other more common types of cancers. Got it. I just want to note that this has only been tried uh, in people who have just been diagnosed with AML, not folks who've been treated before and relapsed. That's right. Help us understand why that's We have done a pilot study of this drug in the relapse setting, and it doesn't work very well. So compared to how well it works in the upfront, untreated setting, it's a completely different story. We think we are beginning to understand why that is. And we at the University of Colorado, uh, our research team, have some really good ideas and leads on on how to make this actually work in the relapse setting. So we're really excited about the future there. But what a mystery that it would work in in those patients who had just been diagnosed and not in those who had relapsed. Yeah. You know, a lot of cancer treatments are better in the upfront treatment setting because the, the history of the chemotherapy or exposure to other therapies actually can make the disease worse and make it harder to treat. So that's not that uncommon that a therapy would work better in the upfront setting. Wow, that just makes me shake my head in frustration. I have to think (laughs) that that is certainly the case for the patients. Sure. Uh, So as we said, the typical treatment for somebody like Carl Leeson is uh, chemotherapy, but you're focused on the root cause of this disease. Help me understand how stem cells connect into this. Yeah. At the University of Colorado in our hematology uh, blood cancer program, we are laser focused on understanding the biology of the leukemia stem cell population. And and that's what the, the laboratory effort that's led by Craig Jordan and, and Clay Smith, that's what they focus on. Uh, I'm on the clinical side. So all the understanding, all the improvements in, in uh, sort of how leukemia stem cells work, we translate into clinical trials on the clinical side. I bring these right to the patients. So, you know, the leukemia stem cell population is the root cause of this disease. It is the reason the disease relapses, and it is the population of cells that are not killed by chemotherapy. I think of stem cells, I mean, even the name indicates this, as creator cells. Mm-hmm. So that's the fundamental 
fundamental issue is that these stem cells are creating leukemia cells? Exactly. This is the reservoir of the disease that is uh, increasing its uh, propensity to, to, to continue to live and grow. So I think sometimes of leukemia like a weed. And if you just mow the lawn, that's like what chemotherapy does, you can get a remission that may last for a little bit of time. But when the disease or the weed comes back, it comes back worse. The only way to eradicate this disease, to potentially cure it, is to pull the roots out. The roots of the disease you can think of as the stem cells. And this new treatment, uh, boy, these are layman's terms about to come out of my mouth, but essentially this new treatment robs these misguided stem cells of energy. Do I have that right? That's that's right. Yeah. So we've been working for many, many years to find a weakness of the leukemia stem cell population. And that's a very difficult thing to do. But in the context of this clinical trial and the, the efforts of the laboratory at the University of Colorado that studies this, we found a weakness. And it's a weakness in how leukemia stem cells use energy. And it's a unique weakness. We still don't quite understand why they have this Achilles heel, but other cell types aren't this dependent on one type of energy. Now, that's really important because then you can target these leukemia stem cells and not be injuring all the other stem cells in the body of different types. Exactly. So, you know, if other cells shared this weakness in metabolism, then this treatment would be very toxic. But instead, this treatment is very specifically targeting the leukemia stem cell population because they're the only cells we really know of that have this specific weakness in how they do energy. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. We're talking about a breakthrough in the treatment of a type of leukemia. It's called acute myeloid leukemia. And my guest uh, is leading the drug trial at CU. That's Dr. Dan Pollier. And um, I I think of, of chemo as particularly vicious treatment. It's so terrible sometimes for patients. Is that true of this treatment? That's true of this treatment times 10. I mean, in in the historical way to treat uh, this disease with intensive chemotherapy. Uh So the the alternative to this is an incredibly toxic and dangerous therapy that even healthy older people like Carl would do very poorly with. This therapy that we've helped to develop is extremely well tolerated. So the amount of patients who have major toxicity or or die as a result of this treatment is very negligible compared to upwards of 20% of patients who who typically would be expected to die from the the standard of care intensive chemotherapy and this is a pill Yes, it, it it combines two therapies. The 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 big breakthrough is a pill. We combine the pill with an old um, low intensity uh, treatment, uh, and and those two together uh, have have revolutionized the care of this disease. And so the patients you're working with have clearly benefited. The FDA, as I said, has approved this for certain patients. Do, do you use the word cure? Yeah, you know, I mean, that's a loaded word in our uh-huh. field, and we usually like a, a good amount of follow-up time to to sort of say that a person has been cured. We're really in our infancy of understanding this, but I do think that there are some patients that I can prove have been cured with this regimen. What are the implications, if any, for other diseases? I think that's a critical question. Yeah, we go. that's so. So the this weakness in metabolism for leukemia stem cells may be shared by other cancer types, like other more common solid tumors. And so we think that there is the potential you could exploit this weakness in other types of cancer. Thanks for sharing this with us, and also just bringing us in in your mind and while you're in this field a bit. 
Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, Dr. Dan Pollier is Clinical Director of Leukemia Services and an Associate Professor of Medicine at CU's Anschutz Medical Campus. And Pollier's patient, Carl Leeson, is a retiree in Canyon City. We heard from him earlier. This is an exciting time for the U.S. women's national soccer team. They're about to defend their World Cup title. They were in Colorado Thursday night for an exhibition game against Australia. In a tight showdown, Colorado's own Mallory Pugh entered the game. Pugh buried a shot in the back of the net the first time she touched the ball, just seconds after entering the match. She scored again later, and the U.S. won 5-3. Later, Pugh had kind words for her hometown fans. It's fun. I had a blast out there. There are two young stars from Colorado on the U.S. women's national soccer team, Pugh and Lindsay Horan of Golden. CPR's John Daly says the team hopes to remain world champions, but they're also hoping to score a victory off the field. Lindsay Horan strides onto a practice field in bright blue training gear with the vibe of an elite athlete, tall, strong, confident. She's 24, a midfielder from Golden, but doesn't get the chance to play at home very often. It's incredible. It's feeling like nothing other, you know, stepping out into into the Denver crowd and in front of family and friends. Haran is on track to be a key part of the 2019 U.S. Women's World Cup squad, along with another Coloradan, 20-year-old forward Mallory Pugh from Highlands Ranch. The Colorado tie has made them close. She's like my little sister, and I think any time now we're back in Colorado, we train together, and it's kind of just like a very cool feeling having someone that's, you know, from your home hometown that's a part of this national team. It's the quintessential local girl makes good story times two. Both Horan and Pugh grew up playing soccer in Colorado, watching the U.S. women play on TV, and eventually climbed a competitive path to reach the peak of their sport. Pugh expresses gratitude to be a part of it all. Like I get to come out here in my home state and play on this field and with the people I want to play with and playing the game that I love. So um, for me, like, that's kind of just, like, the most important part. Pugh and Haran are now part of a great sporting tradition, playing on one of the most talented and accomplished squads in history. The team has captured three World Cups and four Olympic golds and has a winning percentage that not just rivals but exceeds the likes of the New York Yankees and Dallas Cowboys. And it's got its own iconic place in U.S. cultural history. Chastain will take it. In 1999, the women won the World Cup on U.S. soil. They played before sold-out stadiums, became the talk of the nation, and helped launch millions of youth soccer careers. Then, in 2015, another classic moment, as Carly Lloyd became a hero to a new generation. The women became world champs again. It's a legacy that lives on in a lot of places, like Denver. At an indoor soccer center, a coach with the Colorado Rapids Youth Soccer Club, this group, one, two, three, four in yellow, directs a competitive squad of 10-year-olds. They hustle up and down the turf field, working hard on passing, dribbling, and shooting the ball. 
During a break, the girls rattle off the names of their favorite U.S. players. Alex Morgan. Uh, Carly Lloyd. Mallory Pugh. Yanni, we're on Tobin Heath, number 17. Yeah, I've you, 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 can't, you can't forget. Brooklyn Smith says for these fifth graders, the U.S. players are more than just ordinary athletes. I think they're a great role model for me, and um, when I watch them, I just, like, I could be that someday, and um, it gets me very motivated. The power isn't just on display on the field. The girls say they know about a legal fight the U.S. women have mounted against their employer, the U.S. Soccer Federation. The women's national team players say they're paid far less than their male counterparts and that their team is more successful than the men's. One 10-year-old player, Ella Golis, says she knows what it's all about. Equal pay for equal work. They should get equal pay because they're equally as good or better. So, they're, they're, Yeah, they're better. Way better. They're, way better. they're way better. Player Liza Cathy says she's doing a school report on the emerging court showdown between players on the team, including Colorado's Lindsey Horan and Mallory Pugh, and the Federation. Since they've been fighting so hard, I would like to play professionally someday. And if they can, like, they're kind of fighting the battle for me. Now, before Thursday night's game against Australia, John Daly also caught up with April Heinrichs. She's a native Coloradan who starred on the U.S. team that won the first Women's World Cup in 1991. She went on to coach the team. John asked her about the pay equity lawsuit that the team has filed against U.S. soccer. What do you make of the suit, and what does it mean for this team and also for women's sports? First thing that comes to mind when I think of the lawsuit is it's brave. Think about it. Brave. Brave. These women are have taken their employer to court while they're still employed. There's not a lot of people that would do that. So I think it's brave. I also think it's the right time. Uh, this is not a new topic this is 2019. Um, this is the time between um, the Me Too movement and equal pay um, and equality in conversations nationwide and globally. It, it's Everybody's talking about it. I, I was just looking at a nice graphic um, that women still make about 80, 80 cents for every dollar. And so I think it's... This is a, in general. In general, yeah. So... You know, I think this is the time for us to have this conversation in women's sports. I know that Billie Jean King was instrumental in asking for equal pay in women's tennis, and that took a lot of years. And this is not our first ask, by the way, but I think our women are um, in a really good position to make this happen this time around. And in 91, or, or, you know, 99 even, maybe the team wasn't in the same position as it is now, right? So there's more leverage now. Uh, more media attention, etc. Yeah, and I think um, the argument of why they weren't paying the players equally is so old. The argument was, well, they just don't bring in as much money as the men do. Well, we know that very few Division I men's football programs in America in the college game actually turn a profit. We know that most of the alumni who are donating money and their estates back to that university played and attended that school. Well, those were times and decades where women weren't even allowed to attend schools. So when we look at women's soccer, the argument is so old. Our women are turning a profit. Our women are um, packing stadiums. Our women Generating better television revenues, I believe, than the men, right? I don't know the stats on those, but it's incredible what our women are starting to do now in terms of stadium attendance, um, TV ratings, uh, sponsorships, wanting to sponsor the women's program. And so the, the old argument doesn't fit anymore. 
Additionally, every time the media, like you and I, are talking about women's soccer, that's free advertisement for the U.S. soccer. And they talk about our women's program a lot. On the way here, I heard your radio show, and the woman said, the, one of the best teams in all of sport is playing tonight in Denver, Colorado. And I was like, what? Wow, that's the way she worded it was you know, one of the most celebrated sports teams in the Americas playing tonight in Colorado. So, again, it's the old argument. The old argument doesn't carry weight anymore. So in the stadium tonight are thousands of young girls, and for them, this team is mythical. Yeah. What, what does this team mean to young American and the young girls that are playing soccer? They are screaming like it's the Beatles from the 60s, you know, and their little smiles light up and they're painting their faces and they're wearing the uniforms and, you know, you see the red, white and blue. And so you get you get really a, um, a win-win between it being an American team, right, a, a, the U.S. national team, and um, these women being amazing role models. It's a win-win. Um, if I had a daughter, I'd bring her to the game tonight. If I had a daughter, I'd try to get her to uh, seek autographs after the game to some of these these are some of the greatest role models the most well-educated and greatest role models in all of sport and why not why not uh, push them up for your daughters to see and sons too by the way we have a lot of you'll see a lot of boys tonight too thanks very much april i appreciate it okay john thanks for having me that's CPR's John Daly. You may know him as a health reporter. He's also a huge soccer fan, and he spoke with former U.S. women's national team captain and coach and native Coloradan April Heinrichs. The U.S. women's national soccer team was in Colorado for an exhibition game against Australia Thursday night. Coming up in the second half of the show, the infamous String Dusters. What makes the bluegrass band infamous, and what's a string duster? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Sam Brash, host of Purplish. It's a show about Colorado's democracy from member-supported CPR News. Big questions about state government, answers from CPR reporters, experts, and voters. I want to know what my fellow Coloradans think about things. I was a little surprised to hear him say he doesn't want to use kill committee. There's just a unanimous feeling around the table. Why can't this get fixed? Subscribe to Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The lack of affordable housing doesn't just plague Metro Denver. In Summit County, the high cost of living now spills into neighboring Park County. But competition for housing is only part of the story. CPR's Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce takes us to the small town of Fairplay. The senior center in Fairplay pulls double duty. One half is a thrift store. The other half functions as a modest cafeteria, at least on Wednesdays, where anyone can grab lunch for six bucks. Spaghetti and meatballs. From these lunch customers, a joke I will hear again and again. When I say I'm here to report on affordable housing... No such thing. Steve Unger with the punchline there. We call it Manhattan in the mountains. Now, fair play is not... Aspen. This isn't Summit County, home of resorts like Breckenridge and Keystone, though Summit County does border this region to the north. It's actually where Steve Unger works as a builder. And a lot of Summit County's working class have done this for a long time. Commute to Breckenridge, live 
in Park County where it's affordable. Not anymore. Those days are gone. Or it's certainly harder because the people historically taking refuge in Park County are now under financial pressure from Summit County's middle-class professionals doing the same thing. City and county workers, firefighters, law enforcement officers driving into work from Park County. How you doing? Jerry Blickham is eating his spaghetti and salad at a different table. He's another of the old guard of Park County commuters. And you're making 10, 12 bucks an hour. It's hard to afford thousand dollars a month for rent and that's at the low end people here talk about places that used to rent for six hundred dollars a few years ago going for three times that now fair play mayor frank just meets for coffee at the brown borough a rustic low ceilinged cafe with thick hardwood tables his decades of living around here have not softened his texas drawl it's very important to me because I personally have friends of mine that are affected by this negatively. Mayor just explains Summit County commuters are only one piece of the problem. Another, as people work so hard in vain to find rents they can afford, ironically, about half of the housing stock in Park County sits empty. So these are owners that have second homes that elect not to let these houses out for rent. Not for long-term rentals. Instead, they're listing on sites like Airbnb. Vacation rental around here is so profitable, owners can bring in a month's worth of rent in a single week. That's private enterprise. That's their decision. That would be my decision, should it be me. Mayor Just, in his effort to find housing solutions, has even taken to asking neighbors. Where there's one or two people in a three or four bedroom saying, hey, have you uh, any interest in taking on another person or two. Over at Fair Play's Edith Teeter Elementary School, students are just heading in from recess. Principal Cindy Bear says it's not unusual for kids to show up to school in the RVs where they live. They come to school, especially in the winter, and they're cold at night because in their camper, there's not adequate heat. Kids coming in not clean, needing showers, and, of course, meals... Then, after speaking with Bear about how the housing crunch affects her students, surprise, surprise, this issue hasn't, it hasn't escaped you either. It has not. Bear is a master's educated school principal, a leader in her community. She's also a single mom with five kids. She rents, and she doesn't expect to ever buy a home around here. I can't afford one. Walk down the hall and speak to her secretary, Lorraine Harding. Her situation's even tougher. She's getting priced out of her rental. If I don't find housing coming up shortly, I will have to leave. You think you might have to leave town? I'll have to move from here, yes. We've got restaurants in Fair Play that I try to eat at sometimes, and they're closed. Park County Commissioner Richard Elsner. It's not because they don't want to be open. It's they can't find any help because they can't find anybody that can afford to live here and work at the restaurant. He labels housing as a top issue for the county and tough for government in this part of the state to do much about. We can encourage, we can cajole, we can try to come up with ideas, which is where we are now. It is a really difficult one. He says builders here don't want to work on affordable housing projects when they can put up mansions. And when applying for housing grants, Park County has to compete with all the other counties with this same problem. More prominent counties with much bigger populations. In Fair Play, Dan Boyce, CPR News. My next guests became Grammy winners last year when they took home the award for Best Bluegrass Album. 
Here's the thing, though, about winning an award for the best. How do you follow it up? That's where the infamous String Dusters found themselves after landing a Grammy for their 2017 record Laws of Gravity. Soon after, the Bluegrass Group's five members headed back into the studio, and their new album, out today, is called Rise Sun. Founding members of the infamous String Dusters are with us Andy Hall, who plays Dobro. Hi, Andy. Hi there. And Chris Pandolfi on banjo. Hi, Chris. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having us. You know, this new album, it feels like a live performance. The songs flow well one to the next, instrumental breaks woven throughout. I mean, it strikes me that this should be listened to as a whole, you know, like start to finish. Was that the goal? Definitely, that was part of the vision going to this thing. And a lot of that centers around trying to connect our live show, which is really the main thing that we do. You know, we play a hundred some odd shows a year and we only release an album once every two years, roughly. So we really wanted to bring all this sort of information and evolution around the live show that we've developed on the road to the album process. And you know, the album is about songwriting and, and playing and our sound as a band. But then when it comes to sequencing the record and transitions and the flow of the whole thing, we really wanted that to reflect what we do live. How do you bring that energy to the studio? I mean, just as someone who spends a lot of time in studios, they can be such dead environments. Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah, that that is a known thing in the studios. It's like the studio slow. Sometimes you play slower than you would, uh, you know, or Wait, yeah. that, that, that's a thing in music, the studio slow? Studio slow is a known <laughs> term. So like, you know, you go back and you listen to your old record and maybe you've been playing it live for a year or two and you're like, oh my God, these songs are so slow. <laughs> wow. And so not only that, but yeah, just like the energy somehow is hard to get to transfer through all this technology and into the listener's ears. And so we have a great producer engineer that we've worked with on a number of albums who also helped us with uh, Laws of Gravity, uh, a guy named Billy Hume. And he's like, that's kind of one of his fortes is helping us get that translation. So it's taken us, I think, till this record to really get a handle on that because it is something that's, you know, a challenge. It helps that there are these seamless song changes Another this is your ninth full-length record again rise sun is the title you've also put out several live albums and eps over the years what are you trying to say with this new record 
Yeah, you know, that's always an interesting question when you have five different <laughs> band members bring, and it's a democracy and everyone brings songs to the table to come up with kind of a, a cohesive message. You know, we've tended towards this really uplifting kind of vibe with these songs. I mean, there's still a few, you know, sort of relationship songs, maybe things aren't going great, but a lot of the message of this record is like an uplifting kind of hopeful energy and that's just something that we shoot for that's something that makes us feel good it's something we shoot for in our own relationships you know within the band and so we end up writing about it wanting to it's like you know it's not like a self-help record but it's i mean <laughs> and it's, it's also another way that i think that it connects to the show you know the show is designed to uplift people and you know if we if we did our job people leave the show feeling that sense of community that connection to us that connection to each other and if the album worked then maybe it'll create that uh, that thing too the wind is calm the river moves in the trees leaves are new blossoms peak from underground with the hope the light will be found I should say that the other members of the band include Travis Book on bass, Andy Falco on guitar, and Jeremy Garrett on fiddle. And just to build on what we were hearing there, all five members sing. You all share songwriting credits. You describe this, Andy, as a democracy. Mm -hmm. You know, democracy can be very frenetic. Uh, Does it ever turn into a dictatorship? Does it have to, to get a record done? No, it doesn't have to, uh, but it definitely requires a, an a incredible amount of compromise. And you have to be willing to let your little song babies maybe not make it onto the record or drift away or whatever. You oh, know, I so. want you each to give me an example of something you've <laughs> sacrificed. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I, you know, this album actually was the first one, even though there were sacrifices, where we came together for our pre-production sessions, and that's where we go through all the new songs and hear what everyone's been up to and what the sort of latest and greatest songs that we've written are. And we were almost entirely unified on what the best crop of songs was that represented this sort of unified vision, all these different eclectic influences that create the String Duster sound, being able to identify as a group, you know, yeah, these are our best songs this time around. And that, so that was way too kumbaya. Come on now. Andy, what'd you give up? Trust, I gave up, okay? I gave and I gave. No, um yeah, actually there was a song that I liked that didn't make it on there called Another One Like You. And turns out it's made it instantly into regular rotation in the live show so there's a place for a lot of this music even if it doesn't uh, get on the record right if you have to sacrifice in the studio it can always be on stage well let let's hear a song that is on the record and that apparently there was quite a lot of agreement about this is planets
You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with the founding members of the bluegrass band, the infamous String Dusters. I want to try something a little different. We're going to do a lightning round. You guys ready? Yeah, let's hit it. Okay, just say your answers out loud. Telluride or Red Rocks? Oof. Red Rocks. Telluride. (laughs) Okay, that's some political (laughs) answering. What pairs better with String Dusters music, whiskey or beer? Mm. Say whiskey. Yeah, whiskey. I knew I liked you, too. (laughs) I just knew it. Tour bus or plane? Tour Tour bus. bus. Sure. Tell me more about that. I think that the tour bus, we, we go on tour usually for the first four months of the year, and that's just when we've got the full crew same thing, night after night, two sets, five shows a week, and we just get tight. That's when we our art, I think, really evolves the most. And then we carry a lot of what we've been able to experiment with in that part of the year into festival season, into the big shows of the summer. But there's so much experimentation night after night. It's really just an exciting time to see things evolve and come to life. And only three of you live in Colorado. So it's not that the band is always together. I, I gather the road trips then are a chance to really bond. <laughs> yeah, we've been bonding well for, you know, 13 yeah. years or so. <laughs> so in case I miss the guys, we, we, you know, we take 10 days off and then get back to the touring. But yeah, three of us have all made, found our way to Colorado you know, a place that was really formative early on in the band when we were just trying to figure out what we were and what to do. Our bass player, actually, who doesn't live here now, was originally from Colorado, and he had knew a few people, and we would just drove out here and played a few little coffee shop type things and and, and a house concert. And it is where we really found that like the fans like to like dance, like Mm. stand up and dance. We were kind of in the in the southeast bluegrass scene. People are sitting and listening and that's great. But when we came here, we found people like dancing and being really emotive. And we just we we fell in love with that vibe. I want to get mild high, touch the sky, get lost in mountain time. So th- this idea that you came, I guess, to Colorado six or seven years ago from Nashville, is it what you noticed about the music scene? Is it your love of the outdoors? Because you're really involved in the environmental movement, for instance. I mean, I know that you've partnered with groups like American Rivers and Leave No Trace. Yeah, like Andy said, Colorado was really formative in terms of helping us sort of observe the crowd response, see how that informs the music, and then let that evolution really roll. We just learned so much here in Colorado. And fast forward now, three guys living here, and it's one of the String Duster's biggest markets, and it's just become a mecca for bluegrass music. You guys are huge in Colorado. (laughs) (laughs) We're getting there, you know, getting there, but... uh, but yeah, the, the, the outdoors was certainly also a lure. I mean, we, a bunch of us ski. We like to hike. And yeah, so we started partnering with some environmental causes pretty early on. 
you know, I moved to Lyons first off and within a year went through the floods that happened there and, and saw firsthand, you know, was stranded in Lyons and went through the whole deal of the flood, you know, had to evacuate and it was very scary. And and, and uh, gosh, the festival grounds there were inundated too. Yeah, just exactly. To... Planet Bluegrass, which has, uh, you know, been a big help for us and we played the festivals there a bunch. And so, you know, a lot of that hit home for us. And, and out of that, we, uh, you know, we started partnering with Candade, Oscar Blues is like philanthropic arm and did a song with actually with Bruce Hornsby to benefit the Candade related to the floods. And so we kind of, you know, got into it from a variety of ways. But, you know, it, it all felt very personal moving here and, and seeing that. Let's hear that collaboration with Bruce Hornsby. The track is called Road to Boulder. I got lost on my way home. The path was dim that once had shown like a dog looking for a bone. My head was spinning round So I broke my nose up to the wind to get a sense of where I'd been Looking down that path of sin is always hard to do If I don't take the road Charlottesville I'll take the one I'm joined by two members of the bluegrass group, the infamous String Dusters. What's a String Duster? The name comes from Ben Eldridge, the banjo player for the legendary Seldom Seen. And um, we were consulting with him early on, and he threw the name out. And it was so hard to find a name. I, we had this list that still exists somewhere on paper, and everything was taken. We fished around, and at Ben's recommendation, we were the String Dusters, and then when we found out that that name was taken, we became the infamous String Dusters. Oh, there's a String Dusters. Mm-hmm. There is, yeah, somewhere out there. Have you, You've <laughs> never run across them? We never have run across them, no, but... Uh, it's going to be an ugly fight. <laughs> I know. Well, yeah, you know, hey, it's, <laughs> so the, that's what makes us infamous. The yeah. infamous was added to differentiate yourself. Exactly. Oh, yeah. that's so funny. Yeah. What do you think a String Duster is? Someone who is a hot picker, someone who can really pick hot and dust those strings. The infamous part you got to earn, though. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that comes later. It's a badge. There is a hallmark of your shows, um, which is really fun and unexpected covers. We had a member of our staff shout out a cover that they just love from the String Dusters, well, the infamous ones. Uh, Let's listen and see if the audience gets it. Walking on the Moon there by Sting. With five members, do you kind of rotate which covers you're going to do? Yeah, we we really mix it up with the covers, and we try and get new things in the mix for every tour. And like you said, it's just a, a fun sort of connection point, especially for people who are 
less familiar with the band, you know, they say, play something I know so I can tell how good you are, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and we've just got such a wide range of influences, you know, everything from traditional bluegrass to heavy metal and everything in between. So the covers just help us, you know, put some of that on display and more than anything else, just play some of our favorite music and find sort of new and different ways to bluegrassify that stuff and and it's just a, a fun and different addition to the show. We come too far to give up who we are. So let's raise the bar and not curse to the You're also known for your collaborations with other artists like Sam Bush, Bela Fleck, and the Grateful Dead's Phil Lesh, who you'll actually be playing with at Red Rocks in May. But I want to talk about your sort of side project called the Bluegrass Generals. Bluegrass Generals came about when Andy and I were both settled in Denver and we're part of a, a style of music where jamming is sort of at the center of this thing. Festivals, you know, that's where you learn music, meet other musicians, stay up all night, play music. The offstage jamming you're talking yes, about. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And... um where the whiskey goes down. And, um, <laughs> the Bluegrass Generals is just, you know, our way of taking that jam and sort of making it one step more formal and putting it on stage. And the concept is really bringing together great and different personalities from around the Bluegrass world and then sort of playing each guy's, like, greatest hits. I mean, you've done collaborations with String Cheese Incident. Mm -hmm. Sam Bush. Green Sky Bluegrass. We had Paul Hoffman uh, on one. Billy Strings, great up-and-coming guitar player. John um, Stickley. Yeah. Greg Garrison from Leftover Salmon. It strikes me that this is just a great way to keep a band that's been around for quite a few years fresh. Exactly. I mean, it's just it's an opportunity where there's not really a lot of pressure. You you bring in a, a variety of musicians to, yeah, like have a jam session on stage. And it's just, yeah, it's a great little pressure release. It's a great little just hmm. fun, interesting way to keep, yeah, like you say, keep things fresh, keep things creative. If you could bring someone back from the dead to play in the Bluegrass Generals, who would it be? Oh, man, for me, it would have to be Earl Scruggs, and we'd have two banjos rocking throughout the show. Oh, um, great call. Yeah, and if I could pick with Earl, I mean, he's still, for banjo players everywhere, the gold standard. And, um, you know, even though he's mostly associated with traditional bluegrass, he played really progressive, you know, eclectic music for a lot of his career. And I think he'd, uh, I think he'd do a general's gig justice. Mm -hmm. Okay, Andy? John Hartford maybe would be cool, oh, you know. John Hartford, he's you know the the amazing, unique songwriter, banjo player, fiddle player who really stretched the the bounds of bluegrass, especially with his content and his lyrics. They're just these poetic, funny, comedic, artistic poetry. Really, one of the original real bluegrass hippies, and so I feel like he would be a perfect general. I have to say that these folks feel so influential on you both that it sounds like you play with them on stage to some extent anyway. Yeah, that's, of, a, that's great. I love I love to hear that. That's a great way to think about it. I mean, you. they certainly have influenced us heavily and we we play their songs and we, yeah, listen to them and all that stuff totally informs who you are as a musician and certainly their music lives on through us and whatever as best we know how to do it. Whoa. 
Gentlemen, thanks for being with us. Thank you thanks so, so much, much for having us. The map says my way takes too long. But I want to get there Andy Hall and Chris Bandolfi co-founded the infamous String Dusters. The Colorado Bluegrass Group's new album, Rise Sun, is out now. And they have a busy spring tour schedule planned, including a date at Red Rocks, May 29th. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. Just a song with-